0: You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayak.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayak.
1: Kev Kied here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now, or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel, and you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to NonprofitProblemSolver.com to register. In episode two of Nonprofit Problem Solver, we're talking about programs and services. We talk about how we keep them going during this current COVID-19 crisis. We don't know how long it's gonna last, so we wanna know how best to support both staff and the people that we're trying to serve. We have a look at metrics, what they are likely to look like over this period, how they're going to reflect what we're actually doing and some of the challenges around data security and data management and also how we communicate to our funders what our metrics mean during this period. And we also walk through how best to think about restarting suspended services and what the new normal might look like later in 2020. All that over the next hour. Welcome, everyone, to Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is the second episode. We are talking about programs and services, and I will introduce our panel today, starting with Lisa Peterson.
2: Hi, um, Lisa Peterson here, sitting in lovely Cleveland, Ohio. I'm happy to join this first, or second, I guess, second in a series of the Nonprofit Problem solvers. My background is in humanitarian work, international humanitarian work around data management, strategic planning, and monitoring.
3: Excellent. And Carlos Gonzalez. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Carlos Gonzalez from Los Angeles, California. Um, my role. Um, I currently do a lot of work in nonprofit in relation to public service sector, uh, working with homeless individuals, uh, low income housing folks. Uh, look, working towards ensuring that we can provide resources, housing opportunities to these individuals. Um, so, really looking at the full gamut of service delivery, um, service development in terms of programming, as well as looking at innovations to bring in technology into the fold and how we
1: service um, the folks in need. Excellent. And Emily Taylor.
4: I'm Emily Taylor of Teeny Big, uh, and I help uh, nonprofits bring lukewarm followers and turn them into passionate supporters. Uh, My background is in human-centered design, so I do a lot of experience design, um, helping people integrate more voices into processes, create engagement ladders, and also uh, do some future visioning, which has been very important right now. Thank you for having me.
1: Excellent. Okay, so that's our panel. What we're going to do over the next hour is proceed through a series of questions about programs and services. People are invited to comment along the way in the chat. You can send a chat to all, or you can send it directly to myself. If you prefer, you can ask questions. We will get to a point uh, later in the hour where we turn it over to the group to ask other questions. So that's the pretty standard approach. So we're going to start just by saying that uh, when this whole series was originally conceived, we were not in lockdown, we were not dealing with the crisis that we are now. So so you, unsurprisingly, the coronavirus is going to dominate some of our questions. And the, and the first one, Carlos, I'd like you to start off with, which is how do we continue to manage our programs and services effectively when we have this level of uncertainty? And how has it affected specifically the types of programs that you provide in LA?
3: Yeah, sure. Happy happy to share some thoughts in this regard. Uh, I mean, I think one of the key things that we would recommend or that I would suggest is this idea of looking at your core service delivery and ensuring from those core service, services what it is that you can quote unquote afford to continue providing or servicing and what it is that you can continue sort of scaling back on.
1: Okay.
3: What I mean by that, right. I can share an example of, of some of the work that we've been doing. So we do work throughout the state of California, actually, uh, all the way up in uh, the Silicon Valley and, and as far down as San, San Diego County. We've got a team of about 600 employees that provide social work and housing services and so what we did in this situation is really look at who do we need to scale back on? Who can we put on remote work schedules that are, would be considered non-essential personnel? And who were the folks that we couldn't afford to like kind of put on a remote uh, setting? So what we narrowed it down to was like our boots on the ground people. So everybody that's in direct interaction with clients or people that are receiving services from you as a nonprofit, these are the folks, these are your front lines, similar to our, our nurses and our healthcare providers. And so we did whatever we could to reprogram our service delivery to ensure that that team was supported and so that they can continue operating and providing service. The service need has not gone away. And so if if anything, it has increased for our programs. And so we did need to sort of adjust to make sure that those folks and those team members were supported either through, again, technology, through resources and additional staffing if needed.
1: Okay. And you had a very early, relatively earlier in the curve lockdown in California. How uh, much were you told who was essential and how much did you have to determine that yourself? What Uh, What sort of flexibility did you have in that regard?
3: Yeah. I mean, there wasn't really too much clarification in terms of the criteria to determine essential personnel. Fortunately, we have established strong relationships with local and state um, government uh, entities. And so we were able to have this conversation with their representatives to help provide this clarification to our program and our service delivery. Uh, One, because we wanted to ensure that, again, the individuals and families that we're serving are being supported, uh, but also for the safety of our own employees, right? So we wanted to be mindful about their own particular safety. And so in order for us to be able to inform this process, we needed clarification from our local government entities because we partner with them. Again, as mentioned so closely, we were able to bring this, this clarity to to the table um, to the point where we've even established weekly town hall conversations where we're providing our staff COVID-19 updates through this this similar type of platform. Where everybody can come in, we're all engaging, we're all on the same page. And and when folks are not feeling as comfortable because of whatever's happening out there, we respect that and we honor the availability, the opportunity for folks to take some time off.
1: Right. And uh, you mentioned the town hall. I know you're going to have to leave just a bit early to actually do that meeting. What sort of questions are you getting from staff as this goes week to week and we're still sort of wondering what the next week will hold for us?
3: Yeah, I think one very um, lingering question is this notification factor, right? So what happens when somebody that our team is either providing service to or a staff member comes down and tests positive with COVID-19? What is our mechanism to inform the rest of the team members or the rest of the clients that are being supported? That is one of the top questions that comes to mind uh, from our staff. And so We've provided a series of FAQs that people can go back into our virtual office setting that they can reference. And some of these things are really saying, right, like we're we're really following the local department public health guidance. And they have this way of tracking down who that potential person that was exposed, who that person was interacting with. And so we're really following the, the professional's guidance in this instance. Right.
1: Okay. Now, so Lisa... Uh, in your humanitarian experience uh, outside of, uh, say, First World Nations, how similar is, I know this is a sort of an unprecedented period, but what, what have you see in terms of parallels between disasters or things in humanitarian context that perhaps services in the US, Canada, and Europe are, see, are, are trying to experience for the first time and work their way through?
2: so i would come at it from you know from a data perspective and i think what is surprising now that this is a common crisis that the world is seeing you know Mm -hmm. when you see crises normally in puerto rico or something in like south sudan or or somalia that's contained within that country and this is transcending all of our our boundaries and so even first world countries or Western countries are experiencing some of the things that you would experience in South Sudan. And I think I just sat in on um, something this morning and it's decision making, making decisions with the best available data that you have. And it's often, I think, assumed that we have all the data we need and that that we um, is humanly possible at our fingertips. And Sitting here in Ohio, you see transparency in the way that our leaders are making their decisions about the best available data that they have using that and letting people know what it is that they have as soon as they have it. And this is something I think that humanitarian leaders or senior managers have had to grapple with in the most remote corners of the world and something that we're seeing Western leaders having to grapple with as well. So we might have a leg up on that a little bit on bringing different data sources together to inform our actions and kind of the the ways that leaders do that. And also having contingency planning, which is always a big thing in the humanitarian world. So when a crisis hits and when there's another crisis within that, what do you do? What are your stockpiles? What are your, and so these are some things that this is the bread and butter of humanitarian work. And we're seeing this play out on the world stage now.
1: And you see, as you mentioned, just like Carlos did, that there's the the dual concern of supporting staff, but also supporting the people that we serve, the service users or, or, or program participants. Let me turn to you, Emily. What? What would you say, just in terms of human design principles and so on, are, are the key questions or issues to keep in mind in uh, serving people who are reliant on your programs and services?
4: Sure, I think right now one of the big things that I'm seeing is just that people's mindsets are shifting so much. Uh, so a lot of my work revolves around how do you how do you really understand people's mindsets, get their feedback. Um, and find ways to solve some of those problems through that lens. And what I'm seeing is just week to week, people are at different comfort levels of being around other people, consuming information in different ways, even understanding how people's lives are affected based on if they're an essential worker, if their work is slowed, or if they have kids or not. Um, I think those are very different Ways that I'm looking through the the lens of how people, um, how nonprofits are engaging with with people in their programs and services. So, you know, I think some of the ways to keep on top of that are to keep keep conversations going. You know, town halls are a great way, being able to communicate to people through through email blasts and Facebook Live, uh, different communications like that. But I also think just old-fashioned phone calls and even even letter writing during this time is a way to get feedback because there's a lot of people left off of being online. Um, So depending on what kind of programs and services you're offering, you might not be able to reach as many people, but there will be more meaningful contacts and that that way you'll be able to assess people's mindsets as they shift from this week to next month to six months from now.
1: And is that what you're finding on the ground, Carlos? Yeah, I mean, we we
3: are finding, um, so what we've done is we've adopted some technology. Microsoft has uh, put out a good suite to nonprofits that basically allows them to benefit and leverage the bulk of their office suite. In particular, we are using one of their newer products, Microsoft Teams, Mm -hmm. which basically brings all services into one. So it allows you to collaborate virtually through web conferencing, instant messaging, and create different channels or platforms to communicate across multiple teams or an organization. So we've brought this into the fold and we deployed it immediately to our our employees. And that allows them this opportunity to constantly be in communication, even though they're not in a face-to-face environment. And we're leveraging this technology now just kind of do a play on like telehealth care provision. So for those individuals that we cannot get to because of either their potential illness or or our employee safety, we've established a way to keep in touch with them through either phone calls, uh, video conferencing, just to ensure that the service delivery and the transition from homelessness into stability continues to not be disrupted, given the fact that everything else
1: is. Right. Okay. And I'd I'd like to just build on the... Notion of variability each of our programs and services operates within an an ecosystem often with partners. So when we provide uh, programs in in multiple locations They often uh, reflect or work with a different set of partners How has that complicated your response both for your staff and for the people that you serve?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think partnerships have been essential to continuing business. In particular, right, as, as I mentioned, we've got people that are boots on the ground that have been considered to be essential employees. Um, but because of that, at least in, in California, the way we hear a lot about these like protective uh, personal protective equipment or, or gear, right, which is going to be your face mask, your goggles, gloves, whatever the case might be. The hospital systems as a whole are competing for this inventory or for this stock. And so what California has done is they've created this tiered approach as to like who gets access to the available supply. And social services, in particular, homeless services happens to be in tier three of four tiers that are available. And so our team is really waiting to see what is left behind from the healthcare systems before they can gain access to equipment. So partnerships have been very uh, great. So we have a pretty strong uh, clothing industry, uh, fashion and design industry in Los Angeles. And so what we've done is we've developed partnerships with these companies that have Otherwise, closed shop for their day-to-day business, and have now retooled to create washable uh, face facial like clothing mask, if you will. That now we can have these available for our client base as well as our staff on an as-needed basis. So that's a, that's like one point, of like the importance of uh, continuing partnerships even through this um, COVID nineteen situation.
1: And and Emily, how do partnerships uh, either both both enhance and complicate? An organization's ability to pivot or refine their their programs as they are delivering them,
4: yeah, and I you know I say a lot of the organizations that I work with are not not on the front lines right now um, they might be more um, cultural institutions or advocacy groups um and what I'm seeing is there's there's actually um a really good opportunity to collaborate right now, so Um, with some of the organizations I'm seeing, like they do have a little extra time. And so um, one organizations of of food policy advocacy group, they are reaching out and um, broadening their partnership. So they're bringing a bigger coalition together than they would have before. And it's easier to work with people's schedules right now. And and really, uh, I think people's mindsets are shifting into being more focused uh, because they do Uh, do have less distractions um, depending on how their life is going Um, and so you can really take advantage of that time. Um, I also think there's uh, I've been advising some of my clients to collaborate Um, so as as nonprofits are strapped for cash or not sure what they can spend right now that there's also a good time to collaborate and say let's let's share let's create a video together Um, you know let's do some like share expenses so that it costs less for each of us, but that helps um, build build your audience so um, when you are looking for members and where you are like looking to build up programs, uh, you just have a wider audience to pull from at that time because you're across you know cross sharing your followers um, and telling a collaborative story
1: that's a that's a great example of uh, one of the benefits of of having those partnership relationships. In advance, this is not the time to create necessarily new ones unless you you are remote. But we're what what, I, what I'm hearing basically is uh, either organizations or programs are really sort of at the wall trying to trying to manage things, or they're able to take a step back and then uh, invest in partnerships in ways they haven't been able to do in in the past. Uh, I did want to ask you then, moving uh, to data, which you mentioned before. Uh, In this situation, and again, you can pull in uh, examples from around the world in in a more humanitarian context, how do we think about uh, data recording, data security, not just the remote working, but just the way things are moving so quickly? We're not really in a stable situation. How should we be thinking about data in that context?
2: Yeah, so when I... Think about data recording. I, like in in the situation that we're finding ourselves in now is like the ultimate decentralization, um, where everybody is decentralized. And I think about data governance and governance meaning accessibility and that everybody has access to the data that they need to from an organizational standpoint. And thinking about if your organization has a business continuity plan, if there was anything like that, and if there wasn't, you know, once the the dust settles on this, to kind of look at that, but to look about at accessibility of what it was like before, if you had central repositories where data was stored, or if it was on personal um, laptop computers, and how we can make use of platforms now where there might be disparate data sets, but that we all need to be either when we're collecting data, when we're recording it, when we're analyzing it and reporting off of it, that we're doing it off of that central repository. And if you didn't have that before, the tools that are available to do that in this short term, and then once you come back to make sure that it's harmonized with whatever internal server you may have had. So whether if you're using... Um, like Carlos mentioned, you know that MS Teams is is really integrated. There's Google um, Sheets and Docs and presentations that allow collaborative working. There's Dropbox that has gotten better and better over the years, and Box, and you know these all allow you to put access controls. Um, on data so that people have access to what they need not to you know the whole kitten caboodle there and so I think about data recording in that we're not we're all off operating off of the same data as possible as much as possible and thinking about it in the short term but then in the long term when we go and we try to synchronize our data back together when we're all you know Um, back as a team, masks or not social distancing, but back in the same workspace, or if this is our new normal and we need to shift the way that we are going to be housing our data and making sure that we are, you know, um, drawing insights from that same data set that everybody has. So just giving thought to that business continuity. And I had, um, when I jotted down some notes, just if you're your office standard operating procedures around data flows, like those are more important now than ever because you can't just lean across a cubicle and say, hey, did you get that? It's now, you know, a little bit we're messaging and Skyping. So if standard operating procedures or data flows weren't in place before, it's not, never too late and, you know, and this is the most complicated way that we can do it. So for sure, once you get back into your office, this would be would hold true as well, you know? And so just trying to think of those, document, those documents that you had before to help guide these processes of the way that we work with data and how things are signed off on and how, how data is entered and cleaned and analyzed and reported on. So um, I think, yeah, just about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of issues there. What are you finding, uh, Carlos, in the way that you guys are managing uh, your vast amount of data?
3: Yeah, and I, I was gonna, I was gonna chime in. It's right, like Lee, Lisa and and even what Emily was saying around uh, like partner development and and nonprofits being in a space where, right, like they they've been able to cut through all the different filters that that or that exist out there that keep us busy. All that busy work, in theory, has potentially disappeared, and now folks have been able to sort of like look at where they can concentrate some of their efforts to keep business going. So if it is partner development or if it is improving our data collection or business continuity strategy, I think that now, if ever, is the time to be looking at where those previous existing pain points were at and trying to identify ways to improve upon them, benefiting from this current uh, uh, lull, if you will, from uh, the day-to-day sort of uh, busy work that we find ourselves in. Um, and, and we've we've done something similar to that effect. So we've centralized uh, a lot of our data collection methods to uh, cloud storage. So it, it's all centralized to... Uh, uh what do you call these like uh these where data warehouses where we can drop in all of our information uh and is it is accessible to us uh wherever our team is located, be it through a mobile phone, through a laptop, whatever the case might be. Um, and, and we are able to have redundant backups so that we can ensure that if ever there is an opportunity or a time, sorry, when uh, that information might be compromised, that we at least have something that we can back up to. Um, but a very valid point from, uh, from Lisa around like, ensuring that we are looking at ways to improve business continuity. Um, so, I, yeah, I
1: would just like, agree with that thought process. So uh let me just uh, pull back on something you said about getting rid of some of the busy work. Um I mean it's an interesting situation where we tend to think of of using data to help us determine what's working, what's most effective and eliminating the 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 lowest ranking on those uh to stop doing that but what I I think I heard you saying correct me if I'm wrong is that Because we're having to focus so clearly on what matters most, we are sort of naturally determining that certain activities are are less valuable than others. Is is that that correct?
3: Correct, and 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 perhaps the less the like to classify less valuable uh, an opportunity for a streamlined process. So, right, like if if it's a we do a lot of like. uh, homeless individual, we pay their rent for a, a short-term limit at a time. Right? So it could be a six-month time frame, nine-month time frame. And these instances in which we're sending or generating a check to landlords or, or property managers go through our accounting department. And so that initial request to that accounting department is a paper trail of people signing off on these type of requests month after month, right? And so we're using this opportunity now to sort of say, how can we automate some of this stuff? I see. To ensure okay. that our team, from a program service delivery perspective can get things done faster, and then also our accounting on a H- H- HQ or headquarters standpoint can free up some of their time from processing things that we have technology now available to us that can help expedite some of these processes.
1: so so the urgency of service provision is driving some back office efficiencies. That's correct. Yes, right. okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, emily, in in this period, from starting some sometime in March until whenever in the future we don't know. How should we be thinking ahead about when we look back what we should be looking for in, or how we should be interpreting the metrics we're going to be reporting, say in Q3, Q4, about the current situation?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. I've been doing um, some work around future visioning, as I shared before, and so really getting organizations to see, you know, to think through the new reality and think of where they want to be mm-hmm. in two years time. Um, because, you know, I, I think anyone saying that we're going to go back to normal is, is assuming that <laughs> not, not thinking through um, the current situation enough. So, um, so I like to think about you know, where you want to be in two years and then work backwards from there. Um, so in terms of, you know, capturing data, I think that that has to sort of set where your new goals are um, and being thinking about where, then working backwards and thinking about where you want to be today. I also think, I don't know if this is totally answering your question, but I also think what I'm so interested about data right now is like, I'm a big scientific experiment, you know, psychology experiment lover. And I think right now we're in this really unique situation where there's certain variables that we'd never be able to have in the real world otherwise. So um, I'm really excited for, like, the you know, environmental and sustainability groups, um, not in positive outcomes, but for, for organizations working um, in poverty and, like, thinking about supply chains in the underserved sector. Like, the data that's going to come out of this is going to be really supportive of how, how weak some of those systems have been. Um, you know, again, going back to environmental, like, how that um, how when you reduce driving flights and how much that affects um, the environment I think it's a it's a really exciting time to capture um, this data that's in a scenario we'd never be able to otherwise create um, so yeah, that's kind of twofold I think like looking looking forward to understanding what's important um what will be important in the future to be able to capture that, but also seeing what is what's a really unique opportunity now um. That we could start to capture some of that that information today
1: well i love that I love that positive perspective my My one concern and things that i've been hearing from people you mentioned Emily that uh, a number of your clients have sort of uh suspended services for the time being is that how do you go back in September or or whenever it is to funders and say yeah we <laughs> We've spent all the money, but we haven't actually provided many programs and services. How how do we uh, explain uh, metrics that look like they might do in in the autumn? Lisa, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, sure.
2: I mean, um, Kev, you and I had talked about this a little bit. Um, in you know, in my experience working in humanitarian work, is that there's there's always small crises within the bigger one, and what agencies sometimes will do will they'll keep their metrics the same so the indicator that you may be monitoring but you you revise the targets so you simply scale back and you know that's a discussion with whoever your donor is is that we're still doing this but however if you know our target was you know 92% or 80% it's now going to be this and whatever you know the fund however the funding is allowed to be carried over to that and then I also really like, Emily, how you framed this too, is um, taking a look at what are new normal ways. I don't want to overuse that phrase because we don't know yet, but still, you know, this, you, using these theories of change that you've built your projects on or your programs on and how you see, the The dependencies those may have changed, and so our programs, like the metrics, may need to change because it's it's simply not the way that we're going to be working or responding to need, you know. And so reassessing need and looking at those um, relationships that that we assumed before, you know, that that all may have shifted. So adjusting targets, coming up with, you know. With new ways, of need that we're going to to be responding to, and what you know, what what that goal is, what's you know, it what is our goal? What's our log frame look like now? Um, it, it's probably not the same, right? <laughs>
1: so anyway, just to 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 put that in. And and Carlos, have you reached out already to your funders and and donors about how different your metrics might be looking to uh, reflect this period?
3: Yeah, I mean, again, sort of speaks to some of what's been shared so far is is there's a great and opportune time now to look at if, if as a nonprofit, we've intended to um, refresh our strategic plan that was put together two, three, five, however long ago, like this is a great opportunity to like look at it again and adjust to that plan accordingly and help that inform your conversations going forward with your stakeholders, uh, clients, staff, uh, funders, whatever the case might be. We have an instance where, uh, we do, we do a lot of affordable housing development as well. Um, and a lot of this comes supported with, with funding through local and state, uh, housing um, CDBG type of funds and stuff like that. So uh, we had to reach out. So we've done that where we've reached out to our funders to say, you know what, this project was in the pipeline to start in April. Um, But because we were going to do a rehabilitation to a shelter operation in this instance, that rehabilitation would have caused us to uh, move uh, residents into a tighter, space that did not uh, follow the six-foot social distancing requirement. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in efforts to keep our clients and our residents safe, we reached back out to the funding source and said, like, we can't move forward with this project for now. Is there any way that we can talk about extending the expected completion timeframe? Is there any way that we can start looking at phasing this approach to ensure that, one, we are getting the work that we need to get done, but two, ensuring that everybody continues to be safe. And so it, once you dive into these conversations, and these are these are honest conversations with funders, uh, we have found that they are open to uh, exploring opportunities or options that can work for everybody.
1: All right, go ahead, Emily.
4: Yeah, hey, I just wanted to add to that. Yeah, you know, I, I think what might be stating the obvious, I think one thing to keep in mind is that Everyone is facing this, even, you know, throughout the world. And so, you know, you're relatively, you know, you're still doing all you can. And so I would say to funders, like, I mean, if you're doing nothing, that's that's not good. But you have to rethink what you're doing and doing the best you can with what you have. Um, because everyone, you know, in every state and every country is going to be having these same problems. And funders are going to be very accepting of it. But if you can be if you can really be creative and rethink how you're engaging people, you know, if you're a museum that's closed, it might feel like you can't do anything, but I mean, just seeing like what the Met did with Twitter and their, um, you know, recreate a a famous work of art campaign. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it is, it is engaging people. It might not be bringing the, the dollars in at the door, but it is setting them up for when they reopen to really be top of mind. And and really uh, make a statement.
1: Speaking of reopening, I know Carlos, we don't have you for the, for the full hour. So before you uh, escape from our clutches, can you talk to what you are thinking now about how you might restart suspended services uh, and what sort of processes and, and thinking that you're going through that I'm sure would be widely applicable to others?
3: Yeah, we, we are starting to uh, talk through, um, all right, we we made a determination as to what, as an organization, we consider the essential work that can continue to go on given given the current time frame, and what we can put off as either remote work or non-essential work. And so we're starting to look at those departments, those teams that we classified under the non-essential or that remote work setup, and we're t- starting to think, okay, if if this is the case, can remote work be the new normal for some of our employees or some of our departments? Because they're able to continue business in this setting, right? So does that minimize our existing footprint from like an office perspective, a facility management perspective? So we're, we're helping, uh, are we using that to help us inform our, our thought process? Um, because we are in the uh, low income, no income housing, sort of uh, nonprofit world. We're also thinking like there's a lot of people out there that have been either fur- furloughed or laid off or on, on some kind of forced leave, that are not going to get um, too much benefit from this uh, federal-like stimulus. And so how can we start thinking about further developing our safety net service delivery that goes beyond our traditional sort of uh, core services, right? So if it is education and continuing to offer or, or create new avenues or programming for adult learning, uh, employment sort of resources. So these are things that we don't traditionally sort of Offer ourselves, but mm-hmm. is this an opportunity for us as an organization to grow into this uh, sort of field? That there's a void now because otherwise the the ser- that particular service provider has uh, closed shop for another time being.
1: Right, and 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 Emily, from a from a user design perspective, how should organizations be thinking about that? Either that their some of their core business is shifting because the people they serve have needs that are shifting, or as as Carlos was just suggesting that. Some partners just aren't going to be around anymore um we're going to come on to programs versus organizations shortly but uh what what would you uh advise organizations looking to possibly shift or expand their uh could their core offerings
4: yeah, I think you know when you follow a human centered design process there's kind of three areas that I think would um you, know, you could do all or or a couple but um one is you know. Listening to people, so um, you know, whether it's the the users that you were were previously serving, listening to them and seeing how their needs have changed, either through phone calls or surveys or you know, town hall meetings. Um, You could also bring partners together. So, if you see partners that aren't offering services that you think you might be able to provide, you know, get them together in a meeting and have a discussion about how you might redivide those services or how you might be able to help. And then I think the third area, um, which could be ideas coming out of either of those two things or could just be your own creativity is, is prototyping and testing ideas. Um, so what that means is, you know, if you think you could offer a service, is there a way you could test that out with five to 10 people and see, you know, are, are you able to provide the service that people need? Does it have the, the impact that you want it to have? Um, and, and then, you know, if it's working, great, like, move it, grow it to 100 people. Um, if it's not working, go back and reiterate it, bring in another partner that might you might need to help really make it successful. Um, but that's a way to, you know, it, it's, again, I think sometimes people get a little fearful of, of iterate prototyping and, and testing, um, because it does feel time consuming. But, you know, now is a really great opportunity to Get some spend some time thinking through those ideas, and figuring out how you can just you know at least just minimally test them to see if they work.
1: And what you're really saying is, is leveraging this opportunity to uh, improve services, to reconnect with communities and individual service users about their experience and how that can be uh, tweaked or or, or uh, revised in order to provide a, a a better result and a better user experience.
4: Yeah. I mean, I I even think it's, it's the time to just do something wild and crazy. Obviously you don't want to, you know, mess with people's lives and testing something, but it is a time, you know, um, to, you know, do something totally, totally different, like make a behind the scenes video or um, really come out with a bold perspective on something. And, you know, if you're not sure, like just test it quietly with a few people and see see if that works because it now's the time to really be able to stand out um, yeah. because there are so many people just pulling back
1: and, and Lisa uh how bold are you seeing uh people thinking uh at the moment
2: uh, uh, i Yeah, I mean, I think that what um, Emily had talked about with, (laughs) I don't know, about data, how people are, I think, um, you know, what Emily had talked about with like what the Met is doing is, you know, it's how can you continue like true to what your organization is and what its mission statement is and putting that out there in different ways. Repackaging that and making that available to the world really is what we're doing. You know Um, when we're, when we're using the internet or we're doing these kind of open webinars um, and it's, yeah, I think it's opening up many, many different possibilities for that can be continued after this, you know, and it's, it'll just be another facet to a, Perhaps a program or a project of how to reach people, um, and so you know it's it's kind of redefining a bit like um, what Emily had had pointed out to and, and being being bold
1: <laughs> and are, are you finding, Carlos, that your colleagues are uh, more positive perhaps than the press might have us believe people are feeling in terms of uh, essential services
3: yeah I mean the 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 homeless sector is is really a, a group that has come together to ensure that nobody gets left behind um, or 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 falls into homelessness and so really looking at ways to i mean i, I think the word "innovate" is is frequently used and, and overly used in many instances. But right, like if ever there is an opportunity to do so, um, here is the time. It, and it's it's a tough sort of thought process for nonprofits because they are so funding dependent mm-hmm. that failure isn't always going to be an option to success from a, like getting a new grant or something like that. But uh, if ever the opportunity now is the time to ensure that people are are to at least one, right, are testing the waters in terms of c- conceptual service delivery, um, and then uh, scaling that to size. I, I sit in, um, in an advisory board for emerging leaders across the nonprofit sector in Los Angeles, and one of the conversations that we talked about actually this week was um, there's a nonprofit uh, out in in one of our rural areas. There, there are some rural areas within L.A. County, um, uh, and they their primary focus is working with the senior population and ensuring that they have uh, referral resources available to the senior population. And so because of COVID-19 and the stay-at-home sort of requirements, our senior population has not been able to get out of their house, essentially. And so what this nonprofit organization has done is they have sort of shifted in terms of like instead of providing somebody with like here's a list of resources that you can look for uh, to get access to food or groceries they've shifted their programming where their their staff is now delivering that food and that grocery to that um, individual right and so in our conversation earlier in the week the the CEO was saying like here they're now starting to think through like here is going to be a potential for a new service delivery for their organization to a adopt, right? So how can we start working with uh, kitchens and
1: grocery markets to be this this channel to deliver these type of goods to people? So I'm really pleased to to hear so much uh, optimism and positivity from the panel uh, in contrast to what is online uh, all day and every day about uh, trying to cope with the uh, current situation. and And I, and I was wondering... Uh, is how we resist that temptation that services seem to be having about thinking more narrowly just about survival uh, and 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 how do we shift the conversation to that more that, that, that those bigger questions about being creative and and thinking uh, again to use that term innovatively <laughs> about uh, meeting the needs of our users what i mean i don 't know what you guys have done to so and I'm really, I wish we could bottle it, uh, but how do we spread that uh, message to colleagues across the sector? Emily, do you want to comment on that?
4: I can talk to that. Yeah, I, I am, a, I call practical optimists. It's, um, I really, you know, I, thinking negatively right now doesn't do us much good, but I'm also very aware that there are some organizations that have fires to put out and you can't, if you have fires to put out, you kind of have to put them out before you can start thinking broadly in big picture. But um, it's part of why I'm I'm doing this future visioning workshop. I think I think nonprofits need the space to allow themselves to just let go of some of those smoldering. You know, hopefully they're not fires anymore, but just uh, smoldering piles and and look to the future because it's only when you do that and see a place of success and start to visualize what that looks like that you can come back and be like, okay, we need to offer different services. We need to, you know, we need to do something different in order to get there. Um, And so that's where I see positivity as like a practical tool to, to, to (laughs) build your new path forward.
1: Positivity is a practical tool. I, I, I like that. Uh, I mean, it's a, it, it's a, it's an interesting uh, point in terms of the resources that an organization brings to programming and services because the the final question I wanted to ask, and I'd, and I'd love the uh, other listeners to to comment on the chat about their view of how they're feeling optimistically or 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 uh, pessimistically about the uh, current state of play. But uh, in in a dwindling pie, we're going to have to make some hard decisions about programs versus organizations. So we tend to fund and think of boards and and uh, legally uh, as organizations, but what actually serves people and, and delivers the the need for the sector is is the programs and services. Um, and 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 there's sometimes that that tension between the two and and which we're going to prioritize. But Emily, to your point, that notion of positivity and the response in causes has given some real world examples, those are the organization's capacity, in a sense, beyond the programming. So um, you know, I, I I was coming from a bias of programs and services over organizations, but now I'm questioning that that bias because there is that 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 potential for a different sorts of thinking beyond the programs and services themselves. Uh, Lisa, can you uh, comment on ways you've seen people, uh, handle this tension between uh, a program's effectiveness versus the organization's effectiveness overall?
2: Yeah. I, I will just kind of pick up on where, um, something that Emily had talked about uh, looking at your goal and the, the means with which you're going to reach that goal may have, may have changed and it's will likely need to change. And so your, your organization is its success as a result of the compilation of all those program successes, your mission statement, your goals, their overarching goals, remain the same how you get there with your programs is what's what's going to change perhaps will change or and so you can align you know if we talk about the impact that you're going to have you align your different impacts from your um from your programs to that to what your you know your overall overall um organization is and i think just you know Carlos had, had mentioned having these candid conversations about realignment or, um, adjustment of programs and the way that you get there may change, but having that, that end state there and being able, you know, I'm from, you know, and being able to measure that, how you're going to measure that may change, but, those, those, you know, overarching the structures and the strategic plans. Those, you know, the those are going to be what's going to guide you. And so, I think, um, you know, I, if organizations have to make fundamental changes based off of what's happening now to change, you know, like what their their core values are, their core mission. That's different. But I think that you know this changing of programs and projects, you know, what, what falls underneath of that is where there's, there's wiggle room and where there's, there are places to, to, to shift that. So, and the way that you measure that, obviously, you know, at the, at the higher you go, um, the less, you know, you're probably not going to change those, those metrics at the top, or maybe change them less. It's just the, the underneath of how you're delivering things or what you're delivering, but the what you fundamentally want to change is probably going to stay the same. I don't know if I hit that or not, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it's. but again, you, I think there's a, an issue between metrics that are program-specific and me- metrics that apply to an organization. And as you said, an organization can change the programming to better deliver their own metrics. Uh, and, and, but oftentimes we find that programs come with a set of metrics with the money, <laughs> from from funders so so the so the metrics apply at both levels too and 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 um just going directly to the question of performance doesn't get us very far in answering that question of organizations uh versus programs okay um I wanted to uh bring in uh Karina Sadler, who is um Joined us on the call. She's a, a certified volunteer administrator. I wanted to ask her uh, around the safe and effective use of volunteers as we um, not only cope with uh, reduced funding, but as we as we pivot to restarting some suspended services. Uh, and again, part of that question between programs versus. Uh, organizations is volunteers often align or ascribe themselves to the organization as as opposed to a particular program. Uh, so Karina, do you want to uh, share with us your thoughts about how we emerge from our current situation thinking about uh, the safe expanded use of volunteers?
5: Hi, thanks for letting me join in. Um, I'm located uh, outside of Dallas-Fort Worth uh, in Texas. Uh, I run a municipal volunteer program. So we typically see about 10,000 volunteers a year. Um, So when this started, we had to close our entire volunteer program. So that was really startling. But I'm going to stay on the super positive notes that we've talked about uh, in this session. Um, And what I've seen is um, people still calling me, people coming in. Um, to our websites, people uh, looking to volunteer that have never volunteered before. So those are always just like super motivating conversations when someone has taken them a minute to think, how can I help that they've never had that thought before. Um, And so what I think nonprofits should be doing is making sure to capture that data, capturing those calls and those contacts, because even if they can't utilize them right now, they will need them. If they're looking, like mentioned before, two years into the future, wouldn't it be great if all those people that had called during this time are part of their team two years from now um, and remained connected to them? I think that's really important. And I know staffing is a big issue and it might be hard to uh, figure out how can we do that? But I think the nonprofits that, that do that um, are going to be really successful. And I've seen so much around virtual volunteering where these mm-hmm. organizations have never engaged virtual volunteers ever, um, but they're having to decide, what are we going to do? Are we just going to totally shut down our volunteer program or is there a way we can keep engagement up digitally? And the organizations that are figuring that out are even just networking and learning from others and applying some of these same Uh, virtual ideas to their organizations, I think are going to be really successful looking ahead. Um, You know, virtual volunteering is not new. It has been around a long time. And I think if leadership allows the volunteer manager to dream and to look beyond what they've been doing the last, you know, 10 years, um, I think that could be really impactful.
1: And Emily, are you seeing that when people are future visioning or thinking about service design, that they are looking uh, not just at volunteers but but also at the, the the virtual volunteers?
4: Definitely. I mean, this is you know this is the time to to see how that works and like when I go back to to testing and uh, prototype been testing, um, you know, see what volunteers can do online. Um, you know, I think when I when When you were just talking, Karina, it made me think about um, you know, when I talk about the time consuming aspect of calling calling members or followers or doing surveys. Um, you know, with the right volunteer, I think that's something you could have a volunteer reach out to individuals with the right training. Um, but yeah, also just thinking towards the future and what you want to see people doing in the future. Um, this might be a good time to if you have volunteers. don't really have stuff to do like have them be part of that that conversation so you can find out what you know what what motivates them to volunteer and and think about how they could help you in the future whether it's totally virtual or partial virtual um, and and help design what that might look like together while you have the time
1: uh lisa how does that how is that you how have you seen volunteers used effectively in uh, in a humanitarian context, and and what do you think the future holds in that regard? It's
2: an untapped source. I think um, what I have seen for when they're brought into kind of um, the normative work of an office is to understand the management that volunteers are great, um, but they also you know um, require uh, a man and kind of um, a space for them within the work structure if that if that makes sense and so to plan for that and to understand what they can offer and the value that they can add and the commitment that an organization needs to make to get the most out of volunteers and so this has just been my experience and then you know I, we humanitarian work has, has for quite a number of years used virtual volunteers for technical kind of, kind of work and um, has, has tapped these online communities. And so just understanding that, um, you know, the value that they can add, but the, also the commitment that you need to make to, to focusing that work. And-
1: okay. Uh, Karina, did you want to um, uh, circle back with any of those comments?
5: I think there, you know, I definitely think volunteer administration sometimes it's, it can be the first to go on layoffs, Mm -hmm. you know, when leadership never really understood the volunteer program from the beginning. I think they see those staff members as expendable, unfortunately. Sometimes I see just kind of waves of layoffs. So I think for staff that remain in these positions when we come out of this, I really feel like there's a lot of work that they can do professionally to emphasize all that they had been doing during this time and lever- if they're able to leverage volunteers and, you know, get impact measures and create a stronger audience through their volunteers. And many volunteers are donors um, mm-hmm. and many of them are voters and many of them, you know, are your neighbors. So I'm hoping that uh, when these programs reopen, that either leadership is going to have a great perspective on the volunteer program or they're going to have a lot to learn um, and hopefully these positions will remain in place to get to that next level.
1: Yes, well, let's hope so. Well, thank you very much. We've uh, filled our hour. It is now uh, two o'clock and uh, I'd like to thank the panel, Lisa, Emily and Carlos, who's had to run off to his town hall and Karina, thank you for that contribution. I appreciate that. And I will uh, look forward to seeing you You guys join us uh, next week. We are speaking around marketing and fundraising. And this group will be back in May on the 10th, I believe. We will see you then. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode two of Nonprofit Problem Solver, focusing on programs and services. Special thanks to this week's panel of experts, including Emily Taylor, Lisa Peterson, and Carlos Gonzalez. Thanks also to Glenn Munoz at Pod Pro Audio for producing the episode.
0: You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner. Where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.